Well, good morning. That was the best you're a nobody introduction I've ever received in my life. So thank you. Thank you, Ted. <laughs> that was, boy, now I feel so good. Just like Ohana, you know. <laughs> Well, you know what? He, he's, he's right. I, I really am a nobody. Uh, honestly, I've been given the talk, uh, the subject here to talk about now. This today is not talking about God's love for each other and God's love for himself, not God's love for the nation, but it's talking about today. Our theme is our love, our love for the nation. Wasn't that great? Just hearing from Jonah and just, uh, you see, J.D., uh, Pastor J.D. is the real deal because he's, he's gone overseas and he's lived there. And God had to pry his hands open to come back and to uh, do ministry here. And certainly now he's sending churches and sending planters all over the world. And, and for me, I, you know, when I'm talking about today is our love for one another, for God's children. And I, I'm not the real deal. You know, um, I've just been... I just very recently have been experiencing the gospel community that, that I long to see in my life. But I can say this for myself, um, that, you know, I wasn't a great athlete. I tried out for two sports in college. I miserably failed. And, you know, I wasn't a great athlete, but this is something that I do. I try really hard. I try really hard, and I became a competitive food eater. Yeah, I'm serious. So I, I went, this is all long before ESPN covered it and things like that. But um, this was like more like, you know, a c- county fair kind of level, right? And so I used to eat and just gorge myself like a, with food and just be disciplined to eat, eat, eat. One time I ate a 103-ounce steak, okay, just in one sitting, triple butterfly ribeye that looked like a cafeteria tray, two inches thick. And I just, I down that thing. And people say, how do you do it? I say, you try hard. <laughs> you try hard. You don't give up. And you work on your gag reflex to <laughs> shut the trap. You know what I mean? I mean, that, that's the only thing that you could do. You just really try hard. So I'm going to really try hard <laughs> to explain to you the significance of a gospel-centered relationship with one another. Now, let me ask you this question because you guys are all kind of like Bible nerds. What are the last phrases that Jesus said on the cross? You remember? Just call them out. It is finished. Yes. What else? Forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. What else? Yeah, you know, like, why are you forsaking me? And we could say all this except one out of the seven always takes like the junior seat. You know which one that is? It's found in John 19, verse 26. Jesus looks down from the cross and looks at his mom and says, Mother, behold your disciple, your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour it says that the disciple took Jesus' mother into his home as his own mother. Now, what's going on there? You see, back, this is back in a time where there was no leisure world. This is no retirement homes. There's no, um, um, uh, there's no uh, social security and things like that, no pensions. So when you have a widowed mother, the only way that she could survive if, 
as if one of her own would take her into their home. That's the only way that she would survive. And at this point, Jesus had been living with his mom. But now he's on the cross, and on the cross, and from the cross, he's making provision for her. So he's making provision and saying, now I, I, I got to help her find a new home. Now, wait a minute. Culturally, who should be taking her in? See, John chapter 7 tells us that culturally the brothers, Jesus had brothers, and they should be taking her in, but they won't because Jesus knew that they weren't believers. So he looks at his mother and says, mother, and looks at John and says, behold your son. And looks at John and says, behold your mother. A new introduction. And what's happening here is something incredibly radical. What's happening on the cross right then and there is Jesus says, my blood is thicker than your blood. All of our relationship will be changed forever from this point on forever that every person that you look at right now sitting next to you, whether they're blood relatives or not, and especially not whether they're white, they're, whether they're Asian, or whether they're African American, whether they have different personality, whatever it is, Jesus is saying on the cross, because of the cross, because of my blood, now you will experience the strongest relationship with one another than any other relationship on the face of the planet. That's what he's saying. And as you are gathered in Jesus' name in this room, sitting right next to you is somebody who you will see five billion years from now. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that worthwhile to invest in? Yeah, we should. But even though this is really the truest of all true ohanas, there's a struggle. And here's the struggle. There are some competing values in our world that will prevent us from experiencing this gospel community. Let me just mention three that's very obvious. First, we choose individualism over family. We always choose individualism over family. And, you know, maybe Hawaii has a better understanding because of the strength and the culture of Ohana. You invite people in. Strength of the family is strong. But, you know, in the Western civilization, in the Western world, Western culture, individualism is always over family. In the sense, like, I, you, you see the family, it should be the whole set, and you as an individual should serve as a subset, but rather we always think that family exists for us. That the family exists to empower us. We think more individually than the needs of the family. We don't think about family wins. We always think about my win. How is my parent, how is my mom and dad going to help me succeed instead of how could I help my family? See, that, that's a struggle there. And our culture continues to celebrate the personal win over, my, over your family. And growing up, my dad always taught us family wins first. Family wins always supersedes individual wins. He used to get us all together on Saturday mornings. He said, okay, let's clean up. And we used to clean up all this stuff. And I clean up my stuff, and all of a sudden, dad says, well, that's not clean. You got to clean that stuff. I'm like, dad, that's not my stuff. He goes, well, that's not your stuff, but that's your family's stuff. He goes, Ryan, you have a first name only because you have a last name. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he usually said it with a stick, right? So, <laughs> yes, sir. And so we clean up their stuff. He goes, always family first. Okay, family win over your individual win. And I love that. And I say it to my kids now all the time. Like, Dad, that's not my stuff. It's the family stuff. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know? It's the family stuff. It's, 
You know, we, for those of you who play sports, you understand this analogy. It's like play for the name that's in the front of your jersey, not on the back. But we're so much more than a team. Do you realize that we're a family? We're family here. Five billion years from now, we will all hopefully see each other forever and ever and ever. But the culture will continue to celebrate individualism. Here's the second conflict that we see in our culture, that we choose superficiality over depth. Superficiality over depth. Now more than ever, there tends to be a sense of community without the depth of community. With all the advancements of like Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and all the technology, it gives gives off an image that everything is good. You know me. I know you. All the stuff that you're going through, I know. All the important stuff like, you know, man, I went to eat at Highway Inn. You know, and I have to take a picture of my plate lunch, you know. I got to show it to the world because I want you all to be jealous. <laughs> you know, and you're like, oh, man, Ryan's eating at Highway Inn. Lucky. You know, and somehow you feel, like, connected, and we do the same thing over and over. And it gives off, it gives off a superficial level of connection without the depth of relationship. And that's why all the sociologists are saying now, although we are more connected with more people than ever before, we are unknown and more lonely than any other generation ever in the history of the world. It's true. Do you know how I know this is true? I continue to see this over and over and over again. I had, I've, I've had dinners and I've had even conversations here in this room last night uh, regarding this issue. But, you know... Um, we continue to choose breadth over the community rather than depth. And we have, as a result, less and less trust of friends. We don't have guys that we could just totally uncover. You know, many of you will share about 50% of your life, maybe 60, 70. Maybe perhaps if you're really hardcore and you have the reputation of being really honest, you share the 90. But you know what? We always keep the 10, don't we? We always keep the 10 in our pocket. And these are the dark areas that are unevangelized in our lives. And we need to reveal them, drag them out of the darkness so that we could expose it to the, not the world, but at least some trusted friends. But you and I don't have very many of those, do we? Even amongst other believers in your church, in your community, among pastors. And that's sad. We don't have a deep, deep community to share our last 10% with. Here's the third thing, that we choose self-interest over common interest. We share self-interest over common interest, and the trouble with this world is that we constantly find communities uh, based on our self-interest instead of uh, the holistic family interest or other group interest. I mean, namely, I could just say this. If you are a, you know, a single, you hang out with singles. You know, if you're married without children, then you gravitate towards them. Once you have one child, then you gravitate towards them. If they play sports, then you're in another community. And everything, every community that we're a part of seems like it's all driven by self-interest rather than the holistic common interest of people. And I get it. I get it because I um, just had a long season of being single for a long, long time. And I remember my friend Jonathan and I, who used to live in the islands for a while, and he and I were best friends, and we were camping buddies. So every single year, we're like, we're never going to get married. Yeah, you know? And uh, we're like, yeah, stupid girls. And this is like in our 30s. and ridiculous, right? And so we're, we're doing that. And then, like, you know, all of a sudden, he's like, I like a girl. I'm like, ah. Oh. So he gets married. So he gets married. He gets hitched. And so we're, we're in a tent one day, hanging out, camping. And all of a sudden, the tent zipper op- opens up. And in comes his wife. I'm like, what are you doing here? <laughs> this is our tent. 
this is a tent of bromance, not romance. Like, come on. Well, what are you doing here? I felt invaded, right? So as, as their relationship was growing, they started inviting me. Hey, you want to come be the third wheel and, you know, hang out with us? I'm like, no. And then they had a kid. They had a kid. And every day he would show me, like, art from his kid. And I would look at that as a single. And like, isn't this marvelous? Isn't this wonderful? I'm like, it's ugly. <laughs> I didn't get it, right? I'm like, it's a, that's a dog. <laughs> just ridiculous, right? All based out of our, like, self-interest, we just, like, you know, whatever I like, I choose to get. What I don't like, I choose not to get. So uh, then we look for a community where we're just always looking for a shared lifestyle, my interests, my hobbies, all the while isolating ourselves from just really being a part of a, a larger community. Learning to lay yourself down is something that is so foreign in our culture. So... Do you know that as Christians, we have more in common together right now than any other people in the world? This is what the cross of Christ is all about. And so what I want to do for our, the rest of our time is to help us digest what it looks like for us to be a gospel-centered community. What it looks like of how we relate with other brothers and sisters in this room, in our church, on the island, and for the rest of the world as uh, we're talking about this morning. And so I want to start out, this is not our main text, but I want to talk about just the power of how we get there. John 13, it's an amazing passage, verse 34, 35. You don't have to actually turn there. I see you're turning on your phones and stuff. Here, this is something radically interesting. It says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. So you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I think this is fascinating. And here's the reason why. It says, this is a new commandment. And you're like, wait a minute. That's not a new commandment to love one another. I mean, that's all throughout the Old Testament, like Leviticus 19, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Like, how is this a new commandment? I'll tell you why this is a new commandment that Jesus is delivering. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you are to love one another. That's an old commandment. But listen, he says, you shall love yourself. I mean, you shall love each other as I have loved you. That's the new part. Jesus says, I'm not only giving you a model as to how to love, but I'm going to actually give you the means also. Not just the model, but also the means. I'm also giving you a simultaneously an old direction with a brand new dynamic. And this is how you're going to do it. You're going to love one another in a manner to the degree that I have loved you because of the degree to which I have loved you. This is the gospel dynamic. And this was revolutionary. It was revolutionary because it was different from all other religions. Now, pretty much all religions basically say honor your father and mother, help the poor, be generous, love others, including Christianity. And the question is then, what is the difference from Christianity to any other religion? You know what the difference is? The difference is found in why we should live this way. And J.D. was talking about motives, right? of obedience, of how, how in the right motives. Like God is not honored by just, just discipline, discipline. Yeah, sometimes you engage discipline to get your emotions going, to find that intimacy back. But in this level, like this is very important that all other religions basically say this. 
all the philosophy of religions will tell you that you have to live this way so that you can become what you want to be. You see, so you do these things so that you could gain identity. And the Christian way, the Christian doctrine is the only thing that says Christians don't work for our identity, but we work from our identity. Do you get that? I hear you. I hear you say, mmm, yeah. Not for our identity, not to build stuff on you. Not to actually become somebody that you're not. No, but you operate out of who you are. So you don't do it so that you could be a child of God. You do it because you are a child of God. Amen? This is huge. That more you obey and love and follow Jesus, more you are becoming, in a way, yourself. Because you're a new creation. See, you do all these things because you are one. So let me ask you this. Two questions. What does a gospel community look like? And secondly, where do we get the power to become this gospel community? And, and what I want to do, I want to look at a passage in Romans that's very clear. I want us to get really practical this morning to give you real handholds of what this gospel community looks like. And this is what I want us to do, okay? I want us to use this as a, a diagnosis of sorts. Uh, evaluation to see whether you and I are experiencing gospel community. For all you Asians out there, diagnosis is not a good word. Test is your word. <laughs> all right. Ready. <laughs> I, I see you. You guys are all like, all right, all right. So test for you, evaluation for the rest. All right. <laughs> Let's look. Romans chapter 12, starting from verse 9. This is the word of God. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Let love be authentic. These five verses will tell us so much, but what I want to talk about for the next few moments are four markers of a gospel community. The best way you could do this is just evaluate yourself to see, does this describe my community? And the first one is this. A gospel community does not hold auditions. Does not hold auditions. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another, listen, with brotherly affection. Now, this word brotherly affection is probably one of the few words that you know in Greek. The word is Philadelphia, brotherly affection. But also, what's in front of that Philadelphia is a description of love that is really interesting. It is the compound word. Uh, it says Philly storge. Storge is the kind of family love. It's a, it's a love for family affection. In fact, one of the best books that C.S. Lewis, in my opinion, wrote is this book called Four Loves. And it describes the different kinds of love that exist in the world. In the Greek world, there were four kinds of love. The first word, I mean, first love, you know, is I just learned yesterday. It's not agape, but agape. So that's helpful. Just restored my place again. It was agape. Okay, which means sacrificial love. Philos is friendship love. Eros is an emotional 
uh, romantic love, and lastly, storge is family affection. And what I love what C.S. Lewis is pointing out here, he says that storge love has a particular glory that's different than all the other glory because all the other love uh, shares in some form of merit or strength. For instance, agape love, it, it shows you strength of this selfless love. So you are strengthened if you are able to give that agape love. If you're celebrating philos love, a brotherly love, or even an eros love, an emotional romantic love, it's clearly there's, it's merit-based in a sense because, you know, you love that person for a particular reason. But storge love has altogether a different glory. And storge love is this. That glory is unique among all these other loves because it does not, it is not based on merit. It's like how a mother loves her child. You see? It's a family affection. Do you know what's interesting is if you have siblings today, if you, if you come from a family with siblings, you know, sometimes, you know, looking at our siblings, we would never have ever chosen to be friends with our siblings, right? There's no way, right? I'm sorry if you are with each other today, all right? But you know what I mean, right? There's no way. I'm like, oh, I, I, I would have never have ever been attracted to that person unless we were brothers or sisters, you see? And so storge love is this love, this bond that you share with one another that is automatic, you know? You didn't choose your sibling. It's been given to you. And like it, storge loves the strange love, the bond you feel with a person that you wouldn't otherwise expect you to be friends with, necessarily even choose them, but yet you're part of the family and you're part of the community. And Paul is saying here the kind of love that we are to share with one another is this storge love. Romans 12 says you are to love each other with this massive, meaningful, brotherly affection. And I, in true confession, have learned this the hard way. I was a pastor uh, in L.A. for quite some time, and, you know, I didn't even know it. But right out of seminary, I got plugged into this church, and this church, this small church started growing really slowly, but it was growing, and it was filled with very intellectual people. Now, a lot of doctors and a lot of lawyers, a lot of teachers, a lot of engineers, very heady people. And, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but we were experiencing kind of community that loved hanging out together, spending money together, going to vacation together, eating really good food together. And I had no idea that we were just kind of like this enclave and that we weren't welcoming people. That, that there's a shape in the door that you want to walk through the church, and it had to be you have to drive a nice car, you have to have family with kids, otherwise, and you have to be somewhat rich, or you're not welcome. And, and there, there are two families, this, this one dear, dear beloved family that I really loved in the church, one day came up to me after service and said, Pastor, we got to leave the church. I'm sorry, we, we love your preaching, we, we love the teaching here, but we just simply have to leave. And of course, you know, as, as a shepherd, I asked them, I'm like, so could you please explain to me why you're leaving? And they said, we're too poor to stay here. We're too poor. We're not welcome here. We can't do anything that the community does. And this is one of the things that stuck in my life. And God used this painful memory in my life to teach me um, that our church was not one of storge love. You see, Christians don't audition people. You don't choose your brothers and sisters. And thank God that he chose us, not based on our worthiness. Or no, none of us would make the gate. Not one of us would make that standard. 
But because he didn't audition us, we don't audition people. C.S. Lewis puts it so beautifully. He says, we think we've chosen our friends, but in reality, a few years of difference and dates of our birth, a few more miles, the choice of one school rather than the other, any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for Christians, there's strictly no speaking of chances A secret master of ceremonies has been at work in your life. Christ, who said to his disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. At this feast, it is he who has spread the board, and it is he who has chosen the guest list. Every single one of your members in your church is a precious gift from God, everyone, no matter how different they are. God didn't audition us, so we don't sit at his table because we are worthy. Let us not treat other people as if they need to be worthy. Let us just welcome them and receive them because this is one of the primary marks of a gospel community that we receive people of all different personality, all different ages, all different races, all different classes, which is really hard. You know, we have a homeless ministry at our, um, in our church. And, and um, some homeless people have been coming and worshiping with us. And we're in a pretty affluent neighborhood. You know, we're in the Silicon Valley. So people are relatively wealthy. But here are homeless people coming in the back. And one time I sat right next to them. And I started worshiping right next to them. And he stunk of urine. And it started making me really uncomfortable. Until I saw him worship and he had his hands up. And he was closing his eyes, and he was shouting the name of the Lord. And it hit me at that moment that this dude next to me that reeks of urine and alcohol and hair all over, worshiping Jesus, has more commonalities with me than my own blood brother who's not a Christian. That dude is my brother. You are my sisters, my mother and my father. We're a Christian family. Christian families don't audition for one another because we were never auditioned. Amen? Let's go number two. The gospel family does not enable sin. Does not enable sin. How are you doing with this? Verse nine. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hate evil. Be allergic to evil. So not only does a gospel community receive all people, but it wars against sin. And let me just address something that I think is really critical to understand. Gospel communities create environments that are safe for people to be honest and just yourself and real. And yet, those communities never are environments that welcome and is warm to enabling sin. Your ongoing sin especially. And now when we say that a gospel community does not enable sin... Okay, we're talking about a few things here. There is a personal responsibility for you to fight your own sin. Yes and amen. But every single person in this room have, has blind spots. And you know what blind spots are? Things that you cannot see that only somebody else could identify in you and through you and for you. You'll never identify it on your own. You can never confess it if you ever wanted to. Even if you have a, like a really contrite spirit, you couldn't do it because you don't see that in yourself and somebody else in your community can see it though. And they could only bring you this kind of connection, correction. It's not that we have like a referee whistle and blow it every time you do something bad. No, it's not that spirit at all, but it's because we love each other. 
You see, the most weak and pathetic form of love is the type of love that sees a loved one in danger and simply hopes for the best. And we do that all the time with church folks, don't we? Listen, it is not judgmental or insensitive of me to engage my children when they're doing something very dangerous for them. See, I live on one of these streets that I live on the bend. It's like a a blind street corner. And I live right on that elbow. And people tend to drive pretty fast around this corner. And so when my children play in the driveway, especially with a ball or something to distract, if I'm washing a car and the water's running and they see leaves, I'm like, ooh, leaves. And then, you know, they tend to follow it. I get really nervous. You know, I get, I get very cautious because, you know, cars are blazing by. They don't have the reaction time to see my children on the street, right? So what I do oftentimes is I'm like, I just want to pull them back. I, I, I don't just say, you know, it's dangerous, but look at how happy they are. Man, look at how much they love a leaf. <laughs> you know? Um, I know it's dangerous. It'll probably end badly, but there's a chance it might not. So, you know, why not I just go back and watch my football game? You know what? I'd be an evil parent if I did that, right? I'd be totally evil. Instead, you know what I do? I grab them by their ear. Come here. Do you see what that is? That's called a road pizza. You know what that was? That was a cute little squirrel. You want to be that? You want to be that? I'll pay for counseling later, okay? But I'm like, you want to be that? Don't be stupid. Get back into the house. Listen. So in the end, because I'm a good parent, I, I, I need to engage them over this. In the same way, it would be so wise for us to invite others to speak into our lives. And this is why I say it that way. This is why I say it that way. Because we have blind spots and we also have this pride. And this, it's a gospel issue. Let me just really quickly explain that we actually put up our guards, almost putting up a firewall that disables people to come speak into our lives. Here's the question. When's the last time a brother or sister has brought correction to you? When's the last time? Has it been a week? Has it been two? Two months? Maybe a year? Either you don't sin that much. (laughs) Or you don't give permission to people. That's what it means. I think of every instance that I invited somebody to speak into my life, and I'll tell you 100% of the time, it never feels good. Not one time. Not once. But I'll tell you also the result of it, 100% of the time, I'm rejoicing in my heart that they told me. Not at the moment, but as I process it, as I think about it, as I think about what they've shown me about me, how they protected me from the evil path that I was going towards. It's the most loving thing that they could do for me. They are for me. You know who's really not impressed with me? My wife. (laughs) My wife is so not impressed with me. You're like, you're nobody. I love you, though, you know? (laughs) And she loves me enough to tell me things that I don't hear from anybody else. And I have assembled a group of brothers and friends that will speak into my life, not because I like it, not because it tastes good, but because I need it. And one of the clearest signs that you do not understand the gospel is if you have a hard time receiving criticism. Let me tell you that again, that if you have a hard time 
Hearing criticism from somebody else or hearing rebuke or correction, if you have a hard time with that, you have not engaged the gospel in the way that you should. Okay, because every person that I know who don't speak, uh, I mean, who doesn't invite people to speak into them, into their lives, uh, you know what their pseudo-salvation is? You know how they feel so saved? You know how they find their worth? They find their worth in their reputation. They find their worth in reputation. They say, I must keep my reputation. I must keep the way people view me. Anything else would lessen my reputation. So this is what makes me feel alive. It's not the gospel. It's not how Jesus loves you. It's not the permanence to which he says, nothing you do could ever change my mind towards you. Now, that's the gospel perspective. That's irrefutable. And no matter what kind of circumstances you're experiencing in your life, you can stand on that forever, always. And yet, we'll continue to hold on to that reputation. It is a pseudo-salvation project. This is why. And at the same time, I'll say this. For those of you who don't speak into people's lives, here's, it's a gospel issue also. You know why? Because you don't want any, you don't want them to view you any differently than the way they view you now. That's why. You want them to still like you. That's the only reason why you won't confront them. Listen, every single person in this room right now has something to confront to another brother or sister, but you haven't because you're scared. Here's what you're scared of. That you might lose your position with them. It's a gospel issue again because now you are listening to the opinion of people more than the everlasting love and affection of our king. That the applause of men, the applause of women would be greater that their opinions matter more than how God himself, the king of all kings, feels about you. See, it's a gospel issue. Are you able to confront one another? Do you receive people? Evaluate that. Evaluate that in your life. Here's the third thing. Gospel family, they meet needs. Gospel family fights against the spirit of enabling sins. The gospel family continues to not hold auditions and we receive them. But the gospel family also meets needs. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, this is all about carrying, okay, burdens and meeting needs in particular to the saints, which are Christians, Okay, yeah, we should love the world. Yeah, we're going to hear more about it and how we are to love our neighbors right after this session. But this is particularly talking about how we meet the needs of saints. So if you see somebody carrying a 100-pound weight on their back and they're trudging along and they're, they're suffering, you know how to carry their burdens. First, you have to go really close to them. Then their burden has to roll off into you a little bit so that you share that weight and that weight comes on you. And so here's the reality. When you see somebody really depressed and having a terrible day, it's hard. It's hard to enter into their lives, but you do it. And all of a sudden, the next day, they need the same thing, so they'll call you. I'm like, you came yesterday. Could you come today? You're like, oh, I'm busy. And the next week, they say, again, could you come again? Because there's no, no one else to confess to. There's no other person that knows my needs as you do, so would you come again? And it's like, here's the reason why we don't want to do that because we don't want to bear that burden. But when we do bear that burden, all of a sudden, though it is heavy on you, it becomes lighter on them. And they feel better by just confessing and talking things through. What's happening? You are being a substitution for their burden. You see, you are replacing your health and you're laying down and you are getting sicker on behalf of that person's health increasing. 
And this is what it means to carry emotional burden. Well, how about financial burden? There's no way that you could bear that kind of burden without opening up your wallet physically and tangibly, without you sharing resources. And the only way that you could relieve the economic burden of somebody is to suffer with them. You see, I think there is like this spirit in American Christianity that we want to follow Jesus at all costs without cost. I want life change, but don't change my life. Right? We do that all the time. In the same way, I want to help somebody, except it costs me too much. I can't afford to give it. I can't afford to help you financially because I'm in a pinch. Well, Jonathan Edwards wrote a treaty in in giving and sharing burdens. And the first time I read this, it rebuked me. It rebuked me to the core. He calls out his own church to be generous towards those people who are in need in the midst of his own spiritual community. Often Edwards would preach this, and people would say, you know, I know I should probably help people, but I can't afford to, is what he would hear. I have nothing to spare. And this is what Edwards replied. In many cases, we may by the rule of the gospel be obliged to give to others when we cannot do it without suffering ourselves. How else will we bear another's burden if we never are obliged to relieve others' burdens, but when we could do it without burdening ourselves, how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we don't bear no burdens at all? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying simply this. When you say, I would love to help, but I can't afford it, what you mean is, I can't help without burdening myself. That's what you're essentially saying. I can't help without costing me. And Edward says, this is exactly what it looks like for Christians to contribute to each other's needs. This is what it means. And when you say, I can't afford to help, what you mean is, I can't afford to help without suffering myself. And that's the whole point. Christians are called to suffer together because we're one body, we're saint, set apart, the holy ones, and we are to give towards one another's need at the expense of our cause because of Christ. Romans 12, 11 says, outdo one another, right? In showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. That, that whole Verse in verse 11 is in this entirety context. Do all these things. And if you're doing all these things, you are serving me, is what Jesus is saying. You're serving him. Romans 15.1 says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Do you, Christians, meet the needs of other people's burdens in your gospel family? Here's the last one. Fourth. The gospel family points each other to the gospel. We point and say, come, look at the gospel. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. There are three things, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. These these things have such great gospel implications. First, rejoice in hope. What is hope? The biblical definition of hope is so much more stronger than the modern definition of hope, the English word hope, right? Because the English word, it's like it it connotes or it actually embeds in a a level of uncertainty, right? We say, hey, is UH going to win their conference this year? (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. Probably not, but I hope so. 
right? There's, there's this hope, right? But the biblical hope, the biblical hope, if every time the Bible uses a hope, is referring to having certainty with something that has not happened yet, but is coming. And that revolutionizes your life. You see, that's why we rejoice in hope. Do you see? Because you're resting on certainty rather than uncertainty, right? Now our future is absolutely secure now because we live as if Christ lived, and that's the gospel. Now, so the gospel family restores one another through the gospel while other people go through rough patches. I hear this all the time. Christians coming along and saying, there, there, it'll be okay. And my question is, how do you know? How do you know if it's going to be okay? That's a terrible advice. There, there, things will be all right. I mean, would you tell Paul that? Would you tell John that? Would you tell Peter that? There, there, it'd be all right. But we do this all the time. That's not a gospel response. But when we come, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. We come alongside and we weep with them. We could give a gospel response to every single thing that Romans 12 addresses. So first, gospel people remind others that the future is absolutely secure. See, is the future secure? Are you afraid of the future? Are you afraid of what's going to happen the next year and the year after that? Are you scared of that? Remember, Jesus has gone into your future and has secured that for you. And it's a world that is the way it's supposed to be. And I love that children's Bible book. It says, all the wrongs will be made untrue. This is what awaits every single Christian. This is something that we could look forward to, that this world is just a temporary place for us to just wait upon the Lord to see that day coming when there be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, and that we will live with him forever and ever and ever. And in your encouragement of pointing them to that gospel, do you show them that I know your tribulation is temporary? Hang in there. The second thing that gospel people do, gospel people reminds those experiencing tribulation that God is both loving and he's sovereign. So he says, be patient in tribulation. How are you patient in tribulation? Well, this is the hope. You say, look at the cross. Because when you see the cross, it addresses two ideas that are absolutely and theologically robust that we cannot unfold right now, but that God is loving and that he knows what he's doing. He's in control. Many people who sat under the cross that he's losing control. He's going. That's our Messiah. And yet we know uh, post-cross Christians that the cross absolutely exemplifies God's rich love and God's massive, mighty sovereignty over the world, over every affair in our lives. Do you remind people that when they're going through that? That is the gospel response. I have a son. You know, I have uh, two sons and a daughter. My middle one uh, is my favorite. Don't tell them that. But, but, you know, I know, I know, I know Christians shouldn't have favorites, but I guess I'm not that good of a Christian because I love him. Okay, I have a daughter. Everybody assumes that I love my daughter. I do, but he's my favorite. You see, uh, he is, he's on the autism spectrum, and um, he'll always have a fight in his life. And so I, being one of the underdogs, love rooting him on and cheering him on. And I love his heart. It's so genuine. So on his sixth birthday, I took him to Toys R Us. I said, Brennan, daddy's going to bless you. Because I'm a good daddy. (laughs) The sky is the limit. 
whatever you want in the store, you could have as long as it's under 30 bucks. So he's like, so he's going through the aisles, and I'm, I'm, I'm serious. We stayed there, my wife and I and my kids, I mean, we stayed there for like an hour, him picking up little dinky things, like $5. Daddy, should I get this? I'm like, no, get something way bigger under 30 bucks. You know, like, Daddy, should I get this? I'm like, no, no, get something better. No, you won't like that. That's going to be boring. But, you know, and he kept on choosing all these little dinky things. And as my wife and I were just hanging in one of the aisles, he came and I just felt his hand squeeze my hand. And it was Brendan. And he looks up at me. He goes, Daddy, you choose because you always make good choices. That 30 buck limit went to 300. <laughs> right? <I> just, <laughs> like, whatever. Give me all the credit cards we have, babe. <laughs> we're going we're to work this thing. I don't know if he was playing me. Uh, that would have been sweet. Still, man, I can lose a good hand. I don't mind that. But I, <laughs> I love his heart. And a six-year-old could look at his good daddy and say, you make good choices, so you make it, daddy. Do you have that perspective on God? Do you look at your daddy and say, daddy, you choose for me. You make the best choices. Do you say that to God? In your tribulation, in your hardship, could you say, you're making the best choice of me because you are both sovereign and absolutely loving. Could you say that? Gospel people are also constant in prayer because their daddy wants to, their daddy wants to uh, depend on him. We're constant in prayer. That's the third thing that we see in verse, this verse. That you could go to God at 3 a.m. He's never inconvenienced, you know, never. In the middle of the night, he will hear you. That he loves you and his affection towards you is just overwhelming. That any time you have any odd, any issue, he will come and he will listen to you. You know, do you know what little children do when they wake up in the middle of the night with a nightmare? You know what they do? They, they don't say to themselves, oh my gosh, that was a nightmare. <laughs> a four-year-old doesn't wake up and like, wow, wait a minute. I just had a nightmare of a boogeyman. Boogeymans don't exist. It's only rational then that I should put myself back to sleep. <laughs> Rock of my baby <laughs> on the treetop. No four-year-old will ever do that, right? Instead, what do they do? They're like, mom! And they will do that until what happens? Well, mom comes. They don't shut off, man. They're like the snooze button all the way across out of the room. Like you have to go there and they're like, they're like, I had a nightmare. You're like, there, there, baby. And the mother never looks at that and says, you know what? Please be rational. There are no boogeymans in this world, silly. There's no way. I mean, they don't do that. The mom comes and sweetly just, it's okay, baby. Three in the morning, come. I love you. I love you. Go to sleep. And she'll sing a sweet, sweet lullaby, you know. Mark chapter 4, I always found this really, really interesting. Um, one of the most fascinating things, when Jesus was on the boat, he was sleeping. And he was interrupted by his disciples. And his disciples started freaking out. They started, like, not only did they wake him up, but they started accusing him of things, right? He said, teacher, the first thing is, don't you care that we're about to die? That's what they say, don't you care, right? They're accusing him of not caring like a child would, right? 
So what does Jesus do? Here's the crazy part. He hears their false accusations and their cries, and he answers their prayers. He goes and calms the storm, right? Calms the wind with the word. How powerful he is. And he turns to the disciples and says, Oh, ye of little faith. This is incredible for us. Because many times we in our prayers could only offer a little tiny bit of faith. Do you know what God does with that little tiny faith? He answers them. Because he's a good daddy. Because he's a good, good daddy. You don't feel strong? That's okay. You have a bitty, bitty mustard seed of a faith? Come. He receives it. Three in the morning, come on. Test God of this mad affection for you. And he'll answer them unto his glory, unto his glory and for your good. You see, if a good mommy does that in the middle of the night, how much more would Jesus do it for unto us? See, God is sovereign, you see. We invest in each other because our relationship really is a foretaste of what we will experience in heaven forever. You know, I've been on the islands enough to know what you guys like about the mainland. Okay, like my, my relatives that come over to California, they love In-N-Out. They're like, no In-N-Out. No Chick-fil-A around here. We're dying, you know. No Trader Joe's. Like, we want Trader Joe's. I hear you. I hear you. But let me tell you what mainlanders are absolutely just ripped to the gut jealous of, about for you guys. Kama'aina. Your Kama'aina rates? Oh, man, we're so jealous. <laughs> we'll go to places and like you whip out your little license plate with a rainbow on the doo doo, like two dollars, and we go. I show my license, forty two dollars. I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no sense. You guys have like the kama aina, you know, kama being little child, aina being land. You're a child of the land, and every Christian is not the child of this land. You're a child of another land. See, you and I are citizens of heaven, and this is why. Charles Spurgeon said this, the interaction of saints on earth should be a rehearsal of their everlasting communion in heaven. You and I will spend five billion years after we spend our five billion years together. And this is why we should love each other. And this is why we should invest each other. This is why we should fight not enabling sin. That we support and sacrifice ourselves and lay ourselves down so that others would prosper. That we would point them to the gospel, which is the ultimate solution, over and over and over again. And I will close just simply by asking this question. How do we then become a gospel family? How do we become that? Yeah, we want to do those four things. We want to experience that kind of life. But how do we become that? The key verse, key word I should say is found in verse 13. It's the word saint. Do you see that word saint? Saint is the word, Latin word for sanctus, which means the holy ones, the set apart ones. But here's the question. How do you and I become saints? How do we become the set apart family that we are all a part of? Let me explain to you this way. In my senior year in high school, I experienced one of these moments that would change my life forever, forever and ever and ever. I was running an entire school-wide cheating rink. Yeah, me. They didn't call it leadership back then. Now I know <laughs> that I was displaying some good leadership. But, you know, um, 
I organized it and I got caught in my senior year. I had already gotten into the college of my choice. You know, I was happy about that, but that wasn't what I feared. What I didn't fear also is what my principal would say, even though we were good friends. What I feared was my dad, in his opinion. And I remember sitting in the principal's office, just really scared of what that, my dad was going to do to me because he had a lightsaber that was made out of a real stick, <laughs> you know? And I didn't know what he was going to do with that. He wasn't going to play sword with me. So I was really nervous, and I always wanted to find approval in my dad. And so here he comes into the principal's office, looks at me, just a little slight glance, he goes in, has like a five-minute conversation with the principal, and he leaves. He doesn't even look at me, so I, I suppose I have to follow him. So I followed him. He gets in the car, and I thought he was going to take off, but he sat there with two hands on the steering wheel. So I suppose I was supposed to get in. So I got in. in the back seat, <laughs> as to be clear out of range of his fist, you know? Like, you know, so I was good. I sat there. We drove, and we went up to our driveway, and he parked the car, and he just, without notice, went into the house, and I sat there. Didn't know what to do. After about a few minutes, I walked into the house, and there he was in the living room, sitting on the couch. So I was supposed to, I guess, sit in front of him, stand in front of him, So I stood in front of him, and what seemed like an eternity to me, it was about 20, 30 minutes, I just stood there. No, no words, silence, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, he starts just weeping, just weeping, and he lunges towards me, and as he lunges towards me, he doesn't throw a punch, but instead he throws himself to the ground, and he starts bowing to me. He starts bowing to me, and he says, son, I today have failed you as a father. I have failed you as a father because you wouldn't do these things if I had raised you right. He was not a Christian. I wasn't a Christian, but somehow he was propitiating for my sins. You see, the family always wins together and also loses together, don't you know? It's not so individualistic. We're family. And on that day, the Kwans were losing. Not only Ryan, but the Kwans were losing. And he started bowing down to me, asking me, repenting to me, would you please accept my apology? Do you know what I did? I didn't say, there, there. <laughs> I do accept your apology. <laughs> I didn't do that. You know what I did? In his great humility and seeing the propitiation of my sins being resolved as he owned it, you know what I did naturally? I didn't even think. But as I saw my dad shamefully bow to me, I started bowing back. I started bowing back. I'm like, please, dad, stand up. Let me bow to you. So comes Christ. And he also lays down his life for you. In utter humility, though he should have been celebrated as the glorious king, he wears a servant's garb and comes and lays down his life for us, even though he did not sin once. What is our reaction? When we see him bow, wash our feet, and bow, stretch his arms on the cross, we bow. And the more you stare at this beautiful picture of the gospel over and over and over again,
I assure you, if you were in my position, you saw my dad bowing to you, you too also will bow. You too will. And I believe this is the gospel work in you. And this is the very thing that will make us into a gospel community. Listen, laying down your life is not easy. It will be hard. It will be tremendously hard. But he says, by this, John, 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and the sisters. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful today as a gospel community that you have absolutely laid down your life for us in all humility, though you should have been celebrated as the king of all kings. You served us. You died for us. You didn't have to enable us to go through some application. You didn't enable our sin. You took it for us. You carry the ultimate burdens of our lives. And all the way, all along the way, you point us to yourself. It is a beatific vision that one day we will see when we see you face to face. But until now, as Paul says, we'll see a glimpse of it. And that glimpse blows us away. As Moses saw a glimpse of you and his face glowed, when we look at the cross, our hearts glow. Father, may our hearts glow today through the activity of the Holy Spirit that we will not try all these things and do things so that we could be your children, but that we would do it because we are. We are your children. We are your beloved. And so today, our simple response is to lay down and say thank you. Thank you. And all God's people said, amen.